Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hi, Julia. Hi, Julia. Julia. You know us from TV. Hi. Meryl Streep proving that there are still great parts in Hollywood for Meryl Streep's over 60. I'm Trisha Bobita. I'm Greta Johnson. And this is the Nerdette Podcast. Coming up, we'll get some homework from Homeland actor and August Osage County writer Tracy Letts. Tracy Letts is an artist I nerd out about hard. You'll hear a nerd confession from me about how hard later in the show. But first, we have a lady scientist extraordinaire to talk with us today, too, actually. One brought the other to the Nerdette podcast. Meg Lauman, known as Canopy Meg, has taken slingshots and hot air balloons to study the canopy of the rainforest, studying biodiversity in ways and in places that few people have ever seen. Not only is she an author, but she's also worked many different science outreach jobs. She just started a new one. She's the Chief of Science and Sustainability at the California Academy of Sciences. And we know about Meg Lauman because of our new science correspondent, Sarah Rand. Sarah is a researcher with the University of Chicago. She does a lot of work in researching how young people get interested in STEM fields, among other things. And Sarah's career path, it could be argued, was actually largely informed also by Meg Lauman. Meg came and spoke at Sarah's college about biology and the canopy in the rainforest. And it's what got Sarah inspired along this path. Since our pal Sarah Rand nerds out about the rainforest, conservation, and specifically lady nerd extraordinaire Meg Lauman, she joined us for the conversation with Meg. Meg, I heard you talk about being an arbornaut, which was a word that I had never heard before, a person who studies the treetops, which sounds fascinating. Technically, astronauts are people who study outer space, and so arbornauts is a terrestrial takeoff for people who study trees. And in that sense, it's kind of a neat word to use with kids because sometimes they love that notion of exploration. So in my world, which started in 1979, I know that's ancient history, I made a slingshot and climbed a tree in Australia simply because I wanted to measure how long the leaves lived in a tropical forest. I came from a very small town in upstate New York where we all knew the leaves lived six months and no more, and uh, the winter came and that was that. But it was a fascinating opportunity. I didn't think about the fact that once I got up this darn tree, there were thousands of other things to study. And of course, the beetles kept eating all my leaves and the birds kept eating all the beetles. And (laughs) I kept getting bitten by everything. And so suddenly I realized I was in this real hot spot for biodiversity by being at the top of a tree. And nobody else had kind of thought of that in such a careful fashion, I guess. A lot of people had climb trees to collect vines or flowers or this or that, but this whole idea that half of the world's land-based biodiversity lives in the canopy was something that we were able to really 
capitalize on in the early 1980s, which is a pretty much an oh, wow part of science. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, a totally unexplored part of our world. The treetops is such a fascinating piece to study. And it still is. You know, kids could all join me and we'd still never run out of things to study because we kind of estimate that we might know about 10% of all the world's biodiversity. And if half of that's in the treetops, then that leaves a heck of a lot left for kids to discover. I was wondering if there's something in particular about the rainforest, a specific creature or a plant that you just find especially fascinating. At the end of the day, I guess my real take-home message to myself is how complex it is and how everything depends on each other. Because some of those birds, you know, are eating insects out of dead leaves that are just rolled up in the canopy. And others, of course, are eating an insect that eats a leaf that in turn makes the chemistry of the tree turn into a medicinal plant for the local shaman. So this whole mind-boggling connectivity is really what fascinates me so much about the tropical rainforest. And every time I go there, I learn something new or see something more wonderful than the last trip. As part of my research lately, I've been doing some work looking into how scientists develop their passion and how they develop their interest in science at really young ages. And from my experience, you know, when I think about how I first got interested in science was second grade, little Sarah sitting in the front row of my second grade classroom. And my science teacher doing an experiment with an egg and a glass jar. And we were actually just looking up this experiment to see if it was a real thing. I remember smoke and flames. <laughs> but actually, it's an experiment where the egg gets sucked into a flask um, because of the change in pressure. And I just really remember that being the turning point for me of falling in love with science. And it sounds like you developed that interest at a very young age as well. So how can we really encourage more kids, and especially girls, to nerd yeah. out about science at young ages? And it's so huge, and it's such a big mission, I think, for all of us that are talking here. I do think we need role models, first and foremost. I had very few. I loved the thought of Rachel Carson saving all the birds. I loved the thought of Harriet Tubman taking the slaves on the Underground Railway and using the moss to find her way in the forest. So I felt like I had these amazing women role models in the two of them, but basically I never really knew a scientist that was female. I never even had a woman science teacher. I never even had a woman boss except for two years of my career. So it's still out there, I think, with this need to really juggle the workforce and think hard about how to get girls engaged. And obviously for all of us to go to schools, to create programs, to be part of things where we might be recognized as scientists or, or geeks, in my case, is still a pretty important part of our career, I believe. So Meg, I love that your books aren't just published research. You're sort of giving a window into the world as you're doing the work, what it takes to do the work. And it sounds like your two sons were with you a lot of the way, and now they're both studying science. So somewhere along the way, they had an experience probably a little more dramatic and exciting than the egg in the flask since they were with you on some of these <laughs> these treks to do research. But what do you think worked for you juggling that idea of sharing your passion, being able to do your work, but making it something that could be a part of your family's life? Yeah. Well, first of all, I had to keep my job because I was a single mom. So quite honestly, it sounds fun in the book, but it was a real challenge to say to myself, how am I going to manage my children 
and my job in a world where it wasn't really a sensitive issue to say to women, oh, your child is sick, please go home today, skip the class, blah, blah, blah. So I had to make it fun for my kids. I had to include my kids in my research. And so that what was maybe a chore in a sense became a challenge that became creative. And in doing that, I only realized years later it gave us a special bond it made me the envy of the neighborhood mom, <laughs> and it you know sort of gave my kids this really crazy education. So I think in the long run, there's probably a lot of scope for people involving their kids in the workplace. But you know, if I'd been a surgeon, I couldn't have brought my kids into the operating table, and if I'd been a banker, they probably wouldn't want me to let my kids help count the money. But <laughs> I think being a scientist is one thing that is conducive to your kids and the boys obviously didn't know they were under a dictatorship. You know, they didn't realize, yes, you will count bugs today, but we tried to make it fun at every turn. And in doing that, they kind of really helped me maintain my career. And I think with kids, you can get a real sense of wonder about your profession and not get jaded the way I see a lot of scientists become, perhaps in mid-career. What are your sons up to now? One is doing clean energy in Arizona and is very devoted to that element of the environment, solar energy and other kinds of public transport and things like that. And the other one is actually was working for the Gates Foundation on agriculture in Africa, which was kind of cool because I work in Africa too. And he just went back to business school and he's launched a new business in the health in environment world where they're helping doctors make fecal transplants, transplant the microbiome between people's digestive tracts. It sounds a little nasty and technical, but the bottom line is a really simple cure for a lot of people's intestinal diseases. So hopefully he might be the one person that does use his environmental work for human health because let's face it, our bodies are little ecosystems just like our environment. So I'm watching them both with great awe and admiration because I think their generation is the solution generation. I feel like my world was finding the faults figuring out water quality and deforestation. But I think in the next generation, they're saying, hey, we got to fix these things, which is really heartening to see. One thing that I think is really fascinating about your work is that a lot of people who are really good at science aren't necessarily the same people who are really good at making concepts accessible or interesting. But you seem to really have a solid grasp of that. And I was wondering if those skills always came naturally to you. I don't think they did. And I'll be honest, again, as a single mom, I had to really think creatively about how can I make science fun for my kids since they were involved in my work a little disproportionately for most of their friends. And so that was my challenge. And I oftentimes tell groups of students, you know, being a parent is a really great leveler because it reminds you about how to translate your work into a public communication level. And so that was really helpful to me. So that was one thing. And then the other thing I learned Kind of in mid-career, you know, Yale University Press approached me to write that first book called Life in the Treetops. And the reason they did is they said no woman has ever written about tropics before the tropical rainforest. And I was appalled 
and I thought to myself, holy cow, even though I'm way too busy, I need to take this book contract on. And when I wrote that book and all my male colleagues said, you know, that is such a silly thing to do. It's a waste of time. It won't help you get tenured or write for the public versus writing in a technical journal. Um, it ended up getting this amazing cover review in the New York Times. And all of my colleagues sort of... <gasps> said, oh, we were wrong. This was probably a very smart thing to do. And I was so pleased and amazed. Um, But what it taught me was that by one reviewer, whom I'll never know, uh, writing a positive review in a very prominent place, she probably did more for rainforest conservation than any of my 100 technical publications. So my take-home lesson from writing that first public book was we need to work harder with the media scientists because until the message gets out and people are voting or people are making policy decisions, we're not really helping the world become a better place. So that just made me totally restructure the rest of my career in a sense. I remember reading your book and that really impacted me and encouraged me to go into science uh, myself. So I don't know if one of your academic journal articles would have had the same effect. A lot of adults have checked out of science. They didn't get that spark as a young kid. They're not as interested. So how do we get adults to come back to be interested in science and to care about these issues? And how do we get them to nerd out about science again? I think in some ways scientists are responsible in part for that. We made it very exclusive in the 80s and 90s. People didn't try hard enough to make sure the language was clear and simple across the board. So now we're scrambling to recover from that really sort of elitist approach, I guess. I think what we need to do is a couple things. One is we can approach adults through their kids, which is very powerful. Another is that we do, for better or for worse, need to approach it either through their health or through their wallet. People aren't willing to just say, oh, that tree's so beautiful, I'll pay millions of dollars to save it. But they do appreciate the oxygen or the fresh water or the fact that their real estate might be enhanced by having this beautiful tree. So we do need to be smarter scientists and I think maybe a little more interdisciplinary to know that science is linked to health and linked to economics and try to build those bridges if we can. I guess I might be the internal optimist, you know, the Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. Two things have struck me abruptly in my career, and one is that I sometimes see all of my colleagues working on tropical rainforest conservation, and yet the figures of deforestation are getting bigger and more severe and more depressing. So in other words, we're not really making a difference. If we were a corporate business with a budget, we'd probably all have been fired years ago because we aren't really hitting our goals. And the other one is I see when I work in a place like Ethiopia, countries where there's almost no science and no cohort of people creatively helping to fix things. So my new mantra is try to go to places where they really need help and a little bit of technology can make a big difference. And the other is to think more creatively about how we do science, which in some cases is quite conventional. And if we can think outside of the box a little bit, maybe it involves working with media. Maybe it involves doing a TV show instead of a technical publication to get a message about conservation to the people that live there. Those are the ways I think we need to operate in the future. One of my favorites is coffee. You know, if you grow coffee in the shade of the overstory forest, 
you get better tasting coffee. It grows a little slower, but it costs maybe 10 cents more a cup because it doesn't harvest as quickly. But it's really wonderful, and most people are so happy to pay a little more for coffee. And then you can serve all the biodiversity of Ethiopia or Costa Rica or wherever your coffee is harvested. And again, those simple lessons of going to Starbucks or your grocery store and saying, I want shade-grown coffee, not sun-grown coffee, will make a huge difference to the future of how it is that we can harvest products from places. But one step at a time, we need to educate the public about all these simple things that we can do to make a difference. Thanks to Meg Lauman and best of luck in her new job. Using science to make sure that humans are sustainable on Earth does not sound like a small task, but we think she's up for it. Meg Lauman is the author of several books, including Life in the Treetops and It's a Jungle Up There. Great reads for anyone not only interested in the rainforest, but how science is done. Hopefully we'll be able to check in with Meg later on, too, to see how things are going and what interesting discoveries she's come across. By slingshot, by hot air balloon, whatever it takes. And thanks to Sarah Rand, whose unabashed nerdery will certainly be lovely in the future as well. You can find a TED Talk by Meg Lauman and a YouTube video of the science experiment with the egg in the bottle that Sarah mentions, both at nerdappodcast.com. We'd also love to hear about the moments in your education that kind of sparked your interest in science or math or anything else, really. So give us a call. Let us know. 312-600-5638. Cocktails before homework? Yes. We have an August Osage County-themed cocktail this week. If you think your family's crazy, wait till you see the Westons, the family at the center of August Osage County by Tracy Letts. What'd you do to your hair? I had it straightened. Why would anybody do that? Just wanted a change. You're a pretty girl. Why don't you wear makeup? Do I need makeup? Every woman needs makeup. Don't let anybody tell you different. The only woman pretty enough to go without makeup was Elizabeth Taylor. And she wore a ton. Shoulders are all slumped and your hair's all straight. You don't wear makeup. You look like a lesbian. Mom. You could get a decent man if you would just spruce up a bit. That's all I'm saying. My tongue is on fire. You supposed to be smoking? Is anybody supposed to smoke? That's a taste of Meryl Streep and Julianne Nicholson in the new film August Osage County, written by Tracy Letts. Booze nerd Rebecca Polson and I both nerd out hard about Tracy Letts, and I have to admit I was slightly less excited about the work of playwright and screenwriter Tracy Letts when I found out that he was a dude, because I was like, this amazing female playwright who writes all these amazing female characters. Well, half of that's still true. He writes amazing female characters in August Osage County. You'll see Meryl Streep and Julie Roberts playing two of them in the movie that's in theaters now. But I first saw this story come to life at Steppenwolf in Chicago in 2007. It completely changed my life. There's more than a few substances fueling the family problems in August Osage County, so we thought, why not a cocktail? We asked our booze nerd Rebecca Polson for a cocktail recipe for the greatest and messiest family gatherings of your future. My grandma McKenna had seven children, eight siblings, and 13 brothers-in-law, so she had to know a thing or two about taking the edge off of raucous family gatherings. This is her recipe for bourbon slush, with a few adaptations to suit the Weston clan. While my Midwestern grandmother's version called for Minute Maid and Verner's, we use fresh-squeezed juices and black tea. The result is kind of like if the frozen margarita had a cousin from the American South. Start the night before by juicing 12 ounces of lemon juice, 6 ounces of orange juice, and brewing two strong cups of black tea. Stir two cups of sugar into the hot tea. Combine the tea and juices with seven cups water and three cups bourbon in a large mixing bowl. 
Cover the bowl with plastic wrap and leave it in the freezer overnight. In the morning, give the mixture a quick whiz with an immersion blender or stir it with a wooden spoon until it gets slightly liquidy. Serve in rocks glasses with short straws. This recipe is pretty boozy and can serve up to 15. Thanks to Booze and Tracy Letzner and Rebecca Polson for that cocktail. And now it's time for homework. Tracy Letz is an actor most recently seen on season three of Showtime's Homeland, where he plays the despicable Andrew Lockhart, senator and future CIA director. He's very good at playing very bad people. He's also an incredible writer. His play, August Osage County, won the Tony in 2008, went to Broadway after blowing people's minds at Steppenwolf, including mine, where I first saw it, and is now a major motion picture with Julia Roberts, Meryl Streep, Benedict Cumberbatch. I'm not hungry. You didn't eat today, you didn't eat anything yesterday. I'm not hungry. You're eating. Do what I say. Everyone do what I say. May I ask why neither of you is dressed? It's not like we're sitting here naked, right? We're dressed. Or should we be dressed up? Right, because you're coming over for fish. I'll eat in my room. That's fine, thank you. Yeah. An amazing cast drawn to this project. Trisha, I have to say, you got me at Benedict Cumberbatch. It's a truly American story set in Oklahoma in the summer. It's hot. That's why that cocktail should remind you of the fact that it can be warm. Even though we've had a polar vortex here, we're trying to warm things up for you at the Nerdette Podcast this week. And here's a little bit of homework that might go well with that cocktail from Tracy Letts. Joni Mitchell, starting with Court and Spark. So Court and Spark... I may get the order wrong in here. Hegira, uh, Hissing of Summer Lawns, Don Juan's Reckless Daughter. You should get all of those albums from that period in Joni Mitchell's history, and you should read the lyrics. Love came to my door with a sleeping roll And the madman's soul He thought for sure I'd seen him Dancing up a river in the dark Looking for a woman to court while you listen to those songs and really learn those songs. That's, really learn the songs. I like that. Yeah. Not casual listening on the bus. you got to be studying these songs. That's right. You need, you need the lyrics in front of you. You need to listen to them under headphones, and you need to make a study of those albums. That's a pretty remarkable period for an artist's output, those albums she was putting out. What is so remarkable about them for you? What strikes uh, you? The marriage of what she was doing that was musically interesting and stretching her own sort of folky roots, the marriage of that with some really remarkable lyrics. I'm not a big fan of lyrics. I don't even pay attention to lyrics for the most part, but uh, her lyrics uh, are quite remarkable and uh, sometimes kind of jaw-dropping. Joni Mitchell, that's that's your homework. That's good homework. And if I, <laughs> if I may give you a nerd confession, I once went to a Tony Award party. It was in 2008, and we were supposed to come dressed as our favorite nominee. I found out on the way there, went to CVS, got a white T-shirt, a black marker, wrote, I am Tracy Letts on a T-shirt. <laughs> and that was my costume. Then you are a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> so needless to say, the other homework for everyone is to go see the film, August Osage County, based on the play by Tracy Letts. Tracy, thank you so much. Thanks very much. We've also got homework from Canopy Meg. Well, I would love to give my homework to be encouraging of more women in science. And not to have any ego in this conversation, I would love for people to read my book and then give it to a student, especially girls, because I tried so hard to demystify and optimize the world of science for women. And then my real sort of hardcore take-home message would be that I think every time that we talk about science, if we make it 
exciting and link it to problem solving. We can get more kids excited about science. Even when we go shopping, we can link the science of fashion or the science of music or the science of sports together so that more and more people understand that science is not just for those of us who are nerdists, although I love that word, but that it really is for everyone and it will help make their world a better place. Thanks to Meg Lauman for the homework. I'm brining a chicken right now. I'm sure there's some science in that. I want her to teach science to everyone. She's such a great science teacher. Don't forget to give us a call and tell us about the experiences you've had that sparked your interest in science or math, crazy experiments you saw, things you discovered while out in nature. Call us at 312-600-5638 and tell us a bit of your nerd origin story. I remember for me, there was a moment in early elementary school when I had nothing planned for show and tell the following day. And my dad said, just bring a bowl and some water and you can demonstrate Archimedes principle. And because I am a true nerd, I totally did it. So, you know, stories like that. We'd love to hear them from you. 312-600-5638. Another thing we'd love is for you to go check out our store. We've got all kinds of sweet merch. Think nerd at hoodies, nerd at flasks. There's a dog t-shirt. There's really anything you could think of. It's on our website, nerdatpodcast.com slash shop. That's it for this week. Thanks again to Meg Lauman and Tracy Letts. And thanks to Nerdat science contributor, Sarah Rand. Thanks to WBEZ and WCQS, our home stations. Thanks to Joe Dassault for his production help. And thank you for listening on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Throw us some stars if you're feeling generous. Our theme is New Old Toys by Poddington Bear. You also heard sounds by Massimo Roberti from the Free Music Archive. Do your homework. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.